0: Well, isn't it a blessing to have our youth lead us in worship? Isn't that a great? Thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. You know, just thinking through some of the songs that we sang, even Hosanna, boy, you can't have more pertinent songs than what we're talking about on Palm Sunday, right? And Palm Sunday is an exciting day, isn't it? Is it not? I mean, this is a day when we're celebrating something that took place over 2,000 years ago, and But it really, it's not just a day. It's a day that kicked off in a, a very interesting week in history. Probably the—well, I shouldn't say probably—the most important week in all of human history. Amen? Amen. And so it's, it's an exciting day. Palm Day is named after the palms that were waved as, as Jesus entered into, uh, into uh, Jerusalem in, in a, an event that we call the Triumphal Entry. The triumphal entry when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. What an exciting day. It also kicks off a seven day period of time uh, that we that's known as the Holy Week, or sometimes that we call it the week of passion. So when you hear of the Passion of the Christ, it's not just a movie, right? The the Passion of the Christ is talking about this one week period of time that happens starting from the, the moment of the triumphal entry. What's interesting, too, if if you read in the book of Matthew, which is where we'll be today, we'll be towards the end of the book of Matthew, chapters 21 through 27. Uh, We'll be jumping around there a little bit today. But when you look at the grand scheme of the book of Matthew, what you find is the first 32 years of Jesus' life is covered in the first 20 chapters. Now, just to make sure we catch what that means, that means, on average, every chapter covers about 1.6 years of Jesus' life. All right? It's uh, it's 569 days, on average, per chapter in the book of Matthew. Um, But Matthew chapters 21 through 27, we have seven chapters. So if you were to follow that math, it should cover around 11.2 years, but it actually only covers seven days. Think about that. So Matthew spends... Spend seven chapters covering seven days, where normally seven chapters would cover a little over 11 years of time. That's five hundred sixty time, 569 times more coverage per day. So do you think this is an important week? Yeah, God decided to put so much information and, and so Matthew is very selective. I mean, to, to come up with one chapter to describe everything Jesus did per year of his life, on average, that's uh, or 1.6 years of his life. Uh, he had to be very selective in choosing what things to include, what things not to include. But we come to chapter 21 and chapters 21 through 27, and Matthew lays it all out in detail for us. Because this is a crucial event in history. Amen? This is leading up to the most important day in, in history. That's the triumphal... Uh, Entry is the kickoff to that So as we look at that, let's uh, let's read about the triumphal entry we will be in matthew chapter 21 I'm going to read verses 6 through 11 So the disciples went and did as jesus commanded them They brought the donkey and the colt laid their clothes on them and set him on them And, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So here we find uh, this great, beautiful moment in in history, right? Where people are just seeing—they're seeing Christ come in, and they're worshiping Him, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. By the way, do you know what Hosanna means? Because that's a Hebrew word. It's not an English word. Hosanna. Anyone know? Yeah, you're right. Save us. Save us. And it's written in a grammatical construct which which shows the urgency of it. It's kind of like saying, save us, save us now, right? And, and, and so they're looking to Jesus Saying we, we need you We need you here And uh, that's not a bad place to be When you're saying that you need Jesus Amen <laughs> And It's not a bad place to be So they're saying save us, save us now But now let's transition one week forward Can we do that? Let's just skip everything else And let's just go straight to seven days later um, In an event uh, that we call The crucifixion right? The crucifixion Seven days later, skip to Matthew chapter twenty-seven for a moment, and let's just read just a portion, verses twenty-seven through twenty or through thirty-one. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the Praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. So you got to get this imagery in your mind here for a moment. You have the soldiers. They've they've surrounded him. They've put Jesus in the middle. Verse 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. What happened? I mean, seven days. Think about that. Uh, What happened? You just fast forward one week, and and you go from the triumphal entry to the crucifixion taking place. Uh, Well, let's look at the timeline. I mean, here you've got, you've got seven chapters, each representing about a day. So, because this happened in, in a, in a seven-day period of time. So here in chapter 21, what do we have? We have with the great triumphal entry. And then you skip ahead, though, to, to, uh, to chapter 27. And right there you have another event, the crucifixion. How do you get to, from one to the other in seven days? I mean, the people, what were they crying in, uh, on day one of this week? They are crying, save us right save us what are they crying by day seven they're just crying crucify him crucify him Uh, this is i mean these are two very different responses to christ isn't it what a radical change Uh, When you look at the difference between these two Uh, Well, let's just take uh, Palm Sunday versus versus the crucifixion for a moment To see where we start this week and where we end this week And then we'll look at what happens in between But on, on Palm Sunday, first, one of the most important things for us to understand about Palm Sunday Is that this was a predicted event It was predicted by the prophets The prophets predicted this event This was not a surprise to God uh, in fact, if we, if we go back to chapter 21, keep a finger somewhere in 27, and, and uh, we'll be all back and forth between these today. But if you look back in chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, this is what we read. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, or, or that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. See, this whole section here, that's not made up by Matthew. Where does that come from? Zechariah chapter 9. When they're talking about the Messiah, and when the Messiah is coming in his glorious entrance, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, what we read is this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah gives this image of, of something very different than what you really typically find in a coronation. You know, when you're, you're crowning a king, you usually have a lot of pomp and circumstance, right? And he's saying, no, this, this king's going to be different. This king's going to come in riding on a donkey, right? It's going to be a very different thing than what, you, what you're expecting. And this is even predicted. And so, so God predicted this through, and, and through his prophets— predicted this hundreds of years before it ever happened. And, and so this, this is happening exactly as God was unfolding history. The way his sovereign plan is, we see God doing this. God knew exactly what was going to happen hundreds of years before. Actually, we know that God knew what was going to happen thousands of years before, right? He just revealed it to the prophets a few hundred years before. This was a predicted event. But when you look at the crucifixion, well, it's important to find out that what we find there is the crucifixion was also predicted by the prophets. See, see God knew about the ups. God knew about the downs. Uh, this was also predicted by the prophets. In chapter 27, this is what we read. Verse 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See this whole section right here? It doesn't start with Matthew. That goes all the way back to Psalm 22. We call it a messianic psalm, a psalm that's talking about the Messiah or the Christ. And so we find a ma- and in Psalm 22, They divide my garments among them, and, and for my clothing they cast lots. Guess what? This was a predicted event as well. Long before it ever took place, God knew it was going to take place. Now, why is this important? Because when we see the ups and the downs, and we see the, the way, different ways people respond to Christ, there's one thing to keep in mind, one thing that is very important, that none of this is a surprise to God. Right? All of this is within His, the context of His sovereign will, His plan. Amen? And so even when we think of—I mean, if you were to just look at the days of the, the events and, and not understand the, 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 the broader perspective of what's going on in human history, you would, you would be very down on the day. you say, our, our Messiah is gone. He's been, he's been killed. He's been crucified, right? But that was not a surprise to God. In fact, ultimately, this was a part of his plan. This was a key part of his plan that's going to bring us the salvation that was promised all the way back in Zechariah, right? It's a key part of his plan. And that's why we see, uh, when we look at the differences uh, between them, we find that in, in Palm Sunday, they had a very different response. They welcomed him as their king. Isn't that what Zechariah promised them? A king, right? And so they welcomed him. They're saying, Hosanna, right? Uh, Save us. Why? To, because they expected Jesus to become their next king. In, fact, in Matthew 21 verse nine they said, "Hosanna to whom the son of David? What does that mean? I mean, is, is Jesus in the line of David? Yes, he is, all right But is he the, the direct son? No, he's the son by, by a long string of, of, of men in the genealogy. But this goes all the way back to what God promised to David. God promised to David, if you go back to second Samuel chapter seven, we won't go there today. But God promised David that he would give a a descendant of his, the kingdom, and his kingdom would last forever. Right? His kingdom would last forever. And so when Jesus comes in, and he's riding on a donkey, just like Zechariah predicted, just like Psalm 22 predicted, he comes in, all the people are saying, ah, this is is whom? This is the son of David. Right? This is the one who's going to start— start a kingdom that is never going to end. And you know what? They were right, but they were also wrong. See, they had a very different idea of what this king was supposed to be. They were right. He was the son of David. Hosanna to him. Save us. And they were right that he was going to save them, but they were wrong because he wasn't going to save them from what they wanted to be saved from. Right? We'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, so they welcomed him as their king on Palm Sunday. And everything they said, everything they did, it showed that they were seeing him in a kingly role. But then we get to chapter 27, and we find that they mocked him for claiming to be their king. Notice, everything they did had symbolism, didn't it? That symbol of, when they're mocking Jesus, everything was mocking him, not just as a person, but mocking him as the king of Israel. Right? Everything that we just read... Uh, about, uh, about this In fact if you go back to Matthew 27 Verse 37 uh, It says And they put up over his head The accusation written against him This is Jesus king of the Jews Can you, can you hear the sarcasm In those words Little did they know those words were actually true But they're saying them in sarcasm um, if, if you look in chapter 27 In fact I don't. I'm not going to put it back up on the screen But I'm just going to read again Verses 27 and on of, of chapter 27. It says, and then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Why a scarlet robe? That's what kings wear. Right? It's the, the color of royalty. So they put a scarlet robe on him. Then when they had twisted a crown of thorns, who wears crowns? The kings. So they make a crown, but this time not a crown of gold, a crown of thorns. And then he placed it on his head. And then he put a reed in his right hand. Why? That's his scepter, right? And then they take that reed out of his hand and they slap him with it. I mean, total, total mockery of the kingship of Jesus. Seven days earlier, they're praising him to be their king, right? Very different responses. That's why Palm Sunday, it's save us. And on crucifixion day, it's, crucify him. What happened in these seven short days? Anyone want to know? <laughs> yeah, I do too. So chronology events, let's take a look at it. So we're going to walk through, and, and normally I preach through about 12 verses or so, more or less, uh, 10 to 12 verses. Today I'm preaching through seven chapters, so we're going to be here a while. Just kidding. We'll still end on time. But wh- if we go to chapter twenty-one. And look at what happened in the rest of the chapter In chapter 21 We find a a, a unique chronology of events Chapter 21, there's another event Besides Palm Sunday In fact, he goes straight from Palm Sunday And this event happens right away And that's an event that I'm going to call The purification of the temple The purification of the temple And let's read Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13 Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Okay, now there's more to the story, but I'm just reading that part to kind of bring to our recollection everything that happened. Can you imagine for a moment, if we invited Jesus—it would be awesome if we could— But invited Jesus to come speak here, I think we'd pack the place out for one, right? But if if Jesus came in, and we had a a time of worship, and we're expecting Jesus to give this great message to to uplift our souls, right? And he comes up here and starts pointing fingers and says, you're worshiping wrong. Can you imagine how you'd feel? Imagine if Jesus then came up here and just started— um, this is a Taylor guitar. I'm not going to kick it, all right? But imagine if Jesus started kicking the things over and flipping things over. How many of you, that would evoke some type of an emotional response? Yeah? Would it be a positive response or a negative response, right? We'd be like, wait, wait a minute, what's going on? Right? This is how they felt. They had their religious system in order. They had all of the things in place. They even made a little extra money through their religion. They, loved, they liked that. And, and Jesus comes in to their main place of worship, where they're expecting him to set up his political system Because to them, politics and religion went together, right? And so they, they, they thought he was going to set up a kingdom right there And all of those who had worked their way up in the, in the religious system Were going to be the political leaders This is going to be great And Jesus comes in and what does he do? He starts flipping tables It's like, you're doing it all wrong I mean, Now, if, you're, if, if Jesus was concerned for popularity, that was a bad move, Right? But Jesus wasn't concerned about popularity, Jesus doesn't need their votes to become the king, right? And so Jesus said, no, this is a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a place that's pure. And you're, you're ruining it by making it about money. I hate to say it, but there are a lot of churches today in America that they're about money, Right? Oh no, we should, we should be wise with our money. We should, take, we, should, we should use our money the way God said yes. But when it becomes about getting money, now it's a problem, isn't it? That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity It's not about getting money. It's not about anything selfish, right? It's actually about the exact opposite. It's selflessness. And he, so he went in, and he purified the temple. So this is not the way the temple worship is supposed to go down. So when Jesus wanted to start his revolution, he started with the false religious setup that they had put put in place. Amen? It wasn't what they wanted, but it's what they needed, is it not? Well, then let's uh, continue on. Chapter 22, then, when we come to chapter 22, we find another interesting thing. I call this chapter the chapter of political inquisition. right? Political Inquisition. The reason I say that is because you have uh, multiple political groups that come and they test Jesus because they saw what Jesus did back in chapter twenty-one, and they said, "Wait a minute, maybe he's not going to be the guy that we wanted here after all, right? Maybe we shouldn't have been so excited about him coming into Jerusalem and people calling him the Son of David after all." And so you have three different political groups that approach Jesus and they and they uh, and they start testing him. Uh, and, and the first group, and and if if you look in chapters uh, chapter twenty two, let me uh, move there myself. Chapter twenty two, verses fifteen through twenty two. We have the Pharisees coming up to Jesus, and they're trying to to trick Jesus. So you have one of the groups. You have the Pharisees. They come to Jesus, and they want Jesus to be a Pharisee, right? And so they ask him the question about, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And they thought, oh, we got a trick question for him. Because if he says, if he says yes, it's lawful, then, then you've got a lot of people that are going to be angry with him. And there goes his political career. But if he says no, then they're breaking the law. And, and then the, the, the Romans will take care of him for us. And so they've got this trick system in place. And they're thinking, ah, oh, we've got a win-win situation. And so they start this war of words with Jesus. But guess what? Jesus, he invented words. Right? He's called the Word in John 1 1. And so Jesus, in his brilliance, just blows them out of the water. And they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You ever be like that, speechless? You don't know what to say, so just mumbling sounds come out. That's how he leaves the Pharisees at the end of that. Um, and then you have the Sadducees who are like, Well, if the Pharisees failed, then maybe we can win. And so they ask him some questions about the resurrection. And they think, Oh, we can, we can trick Jesus with a couple of these trick questions. And. And, uh, and so they think they can prove that there's no resurrection. Jesus just takes their own scriptures, puts it back at them, and they're blown out of the water again. And they, they are left just like the, the Pharisees with nothing to say. And then you have the scribes. Uh, they're the ones who they, they felt like they had the law, and, they, and uh, they are the ones who copied the law. And so they were the, if anyone was right, it's going to be them. And, and so they go to Jesus, and they're asking him uh, uh, questions as well in verses 34 um, th- uh, through, and they're asking about which which is the first commandment of all? Which is the first and best commandment? This is a trick question, by the way. See, because the scribes had come up with a system of laws, and they took every law, every time there was a command in Scripture, and there's several hundred commands in Scripture, and so, so... But yet, Jesus was talking about the law, and and when he talks about the law, he talks about the Ten Commandments. And so they're saying, if he says it's the first of the Ten Commandments, then he's saying, oh, then I reject the rest of the books of Moses. But if he says it's the first one of those, then he's just affirmed their political position and put them in power. Trick question. And Jesus then blows them out of the water, because he argues that there's a divine authority that trumps all human authority. By the way, there is no, there's no pun when I use the word Trump there, okay? <laughs> there's no pun there. But there's a divine authority that is over all authorities. In fact, I'm gonna, I do want to read this. He, he, he walks right through each of those three. He scratches them off the list. Uh, but look at what he said in the end of chapter 22, verse four, starting in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. So, yeah, the Messiah is the, the son of David. That's, that's who it is. Of course, a few days earlier, that's who everyone was calling him. Verse 43 He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord shall say to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make, a, make your enemies a footstool. He's quoting Psalms where David is talking about the Messiah, and he calls him Lord. When David calls him Lord, he doesn't use the common word Lord. He uses the word Lord that is Yahweh. He calls him God. Verse 45, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus took all of the political inquisitions that he gave him. Basically, with this answer, he's saying, Yeah, he's the son of David. Yeah, you're right. But at the same time, David calls him his Lord. How does that work out? You don't have all the answers, scribes. You don't have all the answers, Pharisees. You don't have all the answers, Sadducees. Right? Because what they didn't understand, what they were missing is the key, that this Messiah, even though he was a son of David, 100% human being, he was also God. 100% God. And that's what makes the whole thing work? They missed that. They missed that. There's clues that they missed that all the way back in the triumphal entry. Remember when the people were saying, who is this? And they said, this is Jesus of, Naz- Jesus of Nazareth. Who? The prophet from Galilee. They missed it. They thought Jesus was just a prophet. They missed it. They should have said, this is the son of David. This is God become flesh. They should have seen that coming, Right? And in fact, when you look at the story of Christmas, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. You don't get any clearer than that, right? They missed that. And, uh, and so that's what we find here in, in this political inquisition. God silenced them, not just silenced them, got them to a point where they just quit talking. They said, okay, we're not going to ask any more questions because, you know, you, they've put their foot in their mouth enough times, right? They so then I just can't argue with this guy. So we look at this. We have the purification of the temple in chapter 21. We have this political inquisition in chapter 22. And then in chapter 23, we have what I call, I call this the chapter of the prosecution of the religious leadership. The prosecution of the religious leadership. In fact, if we look at what Jesus said, he spoke very strongly about the religious leadership that was in place in this chapter. This, This is this is one of the longer sermons of Christ recorded, and yet it, it is pretty negative from start to finish. In fact, um, I want to read chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Just, just, and just listen if, if, if you want to. Pretend for a moment that you've been a religious person. You're a scribe or a Pharisee. This is what he says. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. They say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all the works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is his preface. Now he turns towards the scribes and Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves... Nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. And all through the rest of this chapter, we find verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. Verse, uh, uh, verse 19. Fools and blind, he calls them. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse, uh, verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Sound a little repetitious? I mean, this is a strong, this is a strong sermon by Jesus Christ. It is not positive. If he's trying to win votes, bad idea, Right? Imagine uh, someone who wants to become the president, getting get out there and saying, you, you guys are stupid. You're foolish and you're blind. Now vote for me. Hey, it doesn't work that way, right? But Jesus, uh, Jesus wasn't trying to get elected here. He was, he was cleansing something. He was changing the way people were, were supposed to see everything, right? And so he even used this language. This is how he ends his, ends his message to them. It says therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Remember the, all the prophets that God had sent in the Old Testament that were killed by the religious leaders. He's saying you are obviously their descendants, right? It says fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, or you're just as guilty as them. Serpents, brood of vipers! How can you escape the condemnation of hell? wow. I was telling them, you're the religious leaders. You're expecting me to come in and tell you that you're going to be the, the political leaders of the new kingdom. I'm telling you, you're on your way to hell. That's strong language, is it not? That's Jesus. The prosecution of the religious leaders in chapter 3. So we've seen the purification of the temple, we've seen the political inquisition, we've seen the prosecution of the religious leadership. And in chapter 24, I call this the chapter of prophetic judgment. The chapter of prophetic judgment. In, in, uh, in chapter 24, and we won't take the time to read all of chapter 4, but we have him giving the signs and times of the end of the age, uh, He talks about the time period of tribulation and how bad that's going to be and the punishment that Israel was going to receive. Uh, But he also talks about the coming of the Lord and the rapture of the faithful. So this is where where God uh, turns—Christ turns a little bit from the negative and he throws in the positive and says, but for some, for some, they're going to be taken away from this. The faithful, they're going to receive something much better. Because, you know what, this, the, God has to, to explain to us the bad news before the good news is good news. Amen? And Jesus was doing exactly that. And so chapter 24 is this prophetic judgment. And then in chapter 25, when we when we go there, we find parables of judgment. So if you skip ahead to chapter 25, we have the parable of verses 1 through 13. Uh, we have the parable of the foolish virgins and uh, uh, the the bridegrooms. And... And, and we find that, that some chose to save enough oil. It's a long story. I'm not going to go into all of it. Some chose to save enough oil. Others didn't. So when the time ran out, they said to the others, hey, can you give us some of theirs? And they said, well, we don't know how long we have to wait, so we, we, we're going to hang on to ours. And so, in other words, the point of that story was, by the time the ones figured out that the decision they had made was wrong, it was going to be too late. This is a, this is a parable of, of judgment. See, by the time you recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, it's going to be too late. For some of you, because you're already going to reject them, you're already going to be foolish. And we have these we have the parable of the talents, and you, you know the story. And those who, who took their talents and invested them, God blessed them. I see some positive messages coming into this, but to the foolish one who invested it, nothing judgment. And so, we, we, we find this uh, we have the the, the final passage here in uh, verses 31 through 46, Jesus explains that he is going to be the judge over everybody. In fact, and I'll read a portion of it in verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man—this is Jesus speaking— when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. In other words, Jesus is going to be the ultimate judge who is going to separate those who are genuinely his and those who are not. Wow, strong statements, isn't it? It's Jesus that's going to do this. And so when you look at this as a, as a, as a week, that's a busy week, and he's only five days into it, right? That's why it doesn't come as a surprise when we come to chapter 26, and what we find is a plot to kill Jesus. Find a plot to kill Jesus in chapter 26. What's interesting to me is that even one of Christ's own twelve disciples realizes in his mind what Jesus is offering isn't what I wanted. He is failing to live up to my expectations as a Messiah. And even one of their own, Judas, the betrayer, decided he gave up everything he had he had with Christ. For 30 pieces of silver What's interesting is He came around in a a sense A little bit later And he he realized Just like Jesus said By the time you realize Who the Messiah is It's going to be too late And he realized what he did He didn't even want the money anymore And he committed suicide It was meaningless Without Christ And that's what we find With 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 this plot to kill Jesus Even one of his own Said this isn't the Messiah I signed up for And that's why we come then to chapter 27, which is the crucifixion. But you know, I'd like to look at it a little bit different. Instead of calling chapter 27 the crucifixion, I'm just going to call it the chapter of the payment for sin. Because this is really the turning point of the story, where something negative becomes something very positive, right? Yes, it's the crucifixion, and yes, they mocked him, but this was the payment for our sin in the crucifixion. So we read, uh, as we read in the the crucifixion, we see that Jesus failed to live up to their expectations. Now, you hate to start any sentence with Jesus failed, right? Because does Jesus fail? No. But he failed to live up to their expectations, but that's not a failure for him. The problem is what their expectations were. Because they, just like us, I think, by nature, we would like to create God in our own Image, right? In fact, as I was studying for this, and I was doing some research, I was looking online, and I and I came across a video of, of um, an Indian religious leader. In, by India, I mean from India, not American Indian. And and he was saying, well, we have the blessing of being able to create our own gods. And he said we have thirty three million gods in India. Um, he said, and that statistic was taken when we had thirty three million people, right? So everyone can create their, God, their own God in their own image. And I'm thinking, no, you can't. Because if you can create them in your own image, who's the, really the creator? Y- you would be, right? I would be. We're creatures, we're not creators. Amen? Let's be honest. And so, so what did they expect? Because what they expected isn't what Jesus lived up to. But God offered something very different. So what did they expect? They wanted prosperity, Right? Remember in chapter 21? They wanted to be able to make money on this religion. Right? They wanted prosperity. I would say it, but there are a lot of churches today that that's what they're offering. I remember we went on a vacation down to Florida one time and, and we didn't know the name. It was just uh, the closest church and we went to the church. And they were very friendly. took us in there. And the entire message was about how if you give money to God, then God will give you more money. And the funny thing was, then they gave you opportunities not to give money to God, but to give money to them. Right, and, and I'm thinking. So no wonder they, they had a beautiful building. They had all. I mean, they had. I mean, they had a golf carts where they would drive you from the, your section of the parking lot up to the front door. And I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. But I imagine if Jesus went there, he'd be flipping some tables, right? Because they they wanted prosperity. They they wanted that. And when I talk about prosperity, I'm talking about financial prosperity. They wanted stuff. And if that's what you expect Christianity to do for you, then you're in the wrong religion, right? You're in the wrong religion. In fact, Jesus told his people sometimes, hey, come follow me. You might not even have a place to lay your head at night because sometimes I sleep with my head on rocks, right? Do you want to follow me? You might do that too sometimes. say, wow, Pastor Dave, you're really trying to talk us out of Christianity today. (laughs) No, I'm telling you, It's better. See what Jesus offered? He he offered purity. He offered purification when he, when he, uh, when he purified the temple. Remember what Jesus did? He, he drove out all of those who who had bought and sold and, and all the corruption that was going on and the money changers. He, 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 he took that and he said, My house shall be a house of prayer. Guess what? House of prayer is worth having. House of prayer gives you direct access to God. You see, what Jesus was offering was way better. Than what they actually wanted Have you ever had that happen Where you wanted something You didn't get it And realized that What you did get You liked better Than what you thought you wanted right. that's, that's the situation here They wanted prosperity Jesus offered purity They, they wanted um, They wanted A political king Right They wanted a political king They wanted someone Who would come in And say Alright Rome You're on your way out I've united the people Against you God is on our side so the days of Moses, the days of Joshua, where God throws hail and against the enemy, we're going to have that again so that no one can defeat us, and we can have our own political system again. That's what they wanted, a political king. They wanted a politician. For the life of me, I don't understand why we want a politician. <laughs> oh, sorry, Tom, wherever Tom is. You're a good politician, right? Servant leadership makes the, all the difference in the world. But they wanted a political king. But Jesus was offering himself as a priestly king, right? He was offering himself as something, as a spiritual king. He was saying, I'll be the priest. I will be the high priest for you. I will be the intercessor between God and you. And, and there's been a, a break in the relationship between God and, and mankind that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus is saying, I'll step in that gap. I'll fill that gap. Give you an opportunity to be restored to your creator. Now, which would you rather have, that, being restored to God, or a politician? I don't know about you, but hands down, it's Jesus, right? What Jesus was offering is way better. Um, they wanted a Pharisee chapter 23. They wanted a Pharisee. What I mean by that, they wanted a works oriented salvation. They uh, they wanted a religious system where they could do stuff and go go up in their status, work themselves to a position where they could be proud of their salvation. Right? That's what they wanted. Even the Sadducees, that's what they wanted. They wanted to be able to work themselves up so that, that it's about me, right? So that they could wear their enlarged phylacteries and they could have the best places to sit at all the parties and they could have everyone call them, oh rabbi oh teacher all that vain selfish stuff that's what they wanted what did jesus offer though jesus offered one of two things a pardon or punishment when you look at his his, his parables of judgment there's two sides you can either you can either have a pardon Where you accept a a salvation that is not by works, but a salvation that is by grace. Or you can suffer the punishment for your own sins, your choice. Pride was not a third option. Maintaining your pride, that's not an option. You either accept it by grace and you humble yourself and you say, Lord, I recognize I can't earn anything. I can't earn my salvation. I can't, can't earn any of this. And so I have to just humbly... Accept the salvation that you offer me, or I suffer the punishment for following a religion of works. And so many had followed this religion of works. They're like, I don't, I don't want anyone telling me I'm going to be punished for something I am proud of, right? The point in all of these is that what Jesus offers is way better. Than we ever could have desired. To have purity. Uh, you know, uh, to, uh, to have uh, uh, our, that relationship with God restored. What a beautiful thing that is. To have eternal life instead of just a good politi- uh, politician as our king, right? To have eternal life. Who, who would want what the world has to offer instead of what God has to offer? That's what we want by nature. But you know what's cool about the story, too? So we can ask a question, who, who did receive what Jesus had to offer? Because when you read chapters one, uh, 21 through 27, th- you know, there are people who did receive what Jesus had to offer. In fact, if you go all the way back to chapter 21, uh, when, right after Jesus flipped the tables and, and, and all of the, uh, the, the religious leaders were pretty upset, they, they are not the only ones in the story. In fact, in verse 14, we, re- we read this. Then the blind... And the lame came to him in the temple. And what did he do? He healed him. Oh, you're humble enough to admit you're needy? Guess what? I'll heal you. That's the Jesus that I know. Right? That's the Jesus that we love. And, of course, then we find in verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out to the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were... Indignant. Why? Why would you be mad that Jesus healed people who were blind? It's because it hurts their pride. Wait a minute. He's ruining our faith. We want a, we want the religion of pride. We want the religion of works. It goes on verse sixteen, and he said to them, uh, "Do you hear what these people are saying? This is what they said to Jesus. Do you hear what these people are saying? Like, this is blasphemy. They're calling you God." Right? And Jesus said to them, Yes! Have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Yeah, God can take these lowly ones in their estimation, and they are perfecting praise. They got it. You didn't. Wow. It's the humble. It's it's, it's those who are saying, Lord, I'm humble enough to admit I have needs. And I'm going to take pardon over the punishment. No room for pride, right? No room for pride whatsoever. They were humble enough to admit their needs. What about you? I'm going to ask just a couple of quick questions. Number one, which do you believe is better? If you're honest with yourself, which do you believe is better? What the religious leaders wanted? Or what Jesus actually offered? That's the main question that I'm asking today. What what, what do you believe is better? Do you want there to be a a religion uh, uh, like the Pharisees had, so you can work yourself up and maintain your pride? Or do you want what Jesus had to offer, the pardon? Do you want financial prosperity, or do you want spiritual purity? Do you want God to come into your life and actually turn over some tables? He'll do it the result is awesome. I mean, if we're honest, we're all sinners, right? Will you let Jesus come into your life and turn over some tables? We need it sometimes. You know, sometimes we need—and sometimes he uses people. He uses different ways, but he'll, he'll use the Holy Spirit. He uses different ways. I remember when he used a person that came into my life, and, and my attitude was, was rotten, and uh, I was in ministry at the time. I was a youth pastor, and a good friend of mine came up to me and said, Dave, your attitude stinks right now. Now, I can, there's two reactions to that. I can become indignant like the Pharisees, saying, how dare you? Oh, I'm a youth pastor, and you're just a youth sponsor. Right? <laughs> We called them sponsors back then. Youth leaders, whatever. Or I could say, you know what? He's right. God sent him to me. I need to clear my attitude up. You know, I'll tell you what, clearing my attitude up on that day was, a, was a more, more of a blessing for me than any pride could have been, false pride and position, right? So what do we want? Do you want prosperity or do you, or, or do you want purity? Do you want Jesus to come in and actually start working on your life? I'll tell you right now, it's painful, right? Anyone who's been saved for a long time and they've grown in the relationship with God can tell you, it's painful, but it's great. Amen? Do you want to keep your pride? Or do you want to pardon? If you want to keep your pride, you can keep it for a few years, right? Or do you want to pardon? That gives you eternal life. To me, that's hands down. There's no choice. There's no choice there. Do you want a politician or do you want a priestly savior? Someone who's staying in the gap between God and you and say, I'll cover his guilt. No politician can save you. Governments, eventually over time, they, they succumb to government corruption, right? But Jesus offers eternal life free from guilt now and forever, free from sin in the afterlife. I'll take that. I'll take that any day. So finally, I just want to ask you, what do you want to do with Christ's offer? What do you want to do with Christ's offer? In just a moment, I'm going to, to give us an opportunity to respond to this. Maybe there's some of you today, and I, I would guess that, that with this many people here, there's got to be some in here today that they've accepted Jesus Christ only as their politician, right? Accepted Jesus Christ only as something else, and maybe you would be surprised at the judgment. You might get to the judgment and you expect Jesus to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Your, your attendance record was great. And you're going to find that Jesus were to say, no, 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 uh, you, I don't even know you. It'd be Just as surprised as the people who were surprised when Jesus started flipping the tables in the temple. I don't want that to happen to you. Except what Jesus actually offers. What he's offering is that if you'll humble yourself today and just say, Lord, I, I am willing to, uh, to humble myself today. And Lord, I know that you died for my sins. And I can't earn salvation. I can't earn it. I am I'm giving that to you. And Lord, I accept the grace of your salvation. I accept the forgiveness of salvation. And I'll tell you what, it'll be painful, but it'll be awesome as God changes your life. And so in just a moment, I'm going to ask for, for, for you to do that. If you're already a believer, I'm going to ask that as we sing and as we pray, that you just start praying that the Lord would convict the hearts of anyone that's in here that has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Would you do that for me? And just pray right now that no one leaves this place without knowing for sure that they're going to have an eternity with God, and that they begin that relationship right now with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that we would accept what you have actually offered. Lord, we're, we're praying that you would come into our hearts and that you would turn over tables, that you would expose in, uh, our impurities where they are so that we can be right with you. And Lord, we humbly, we humbly admit that we could not earn the salvation or the eternal life that you've offered. Lord, I pray right now that as we sing in just a moment I have decided to follow Jesus. I pray that if there's anyone in here that needs to make that decision to follow you that today would be the day. Today would be the day where they understand for the first time what your salvation genuinely is and that they would accept that and you would change their life forever. So Lord, I pray you'd work in hearts, even as we sing, to bring people who were lost. They were blind spiritually, lame spiritually. But you can give them the ability to see and to walk. That's what I pray for this morning, Lord. In Christ's name, I pray this.